On this two-part episode of Serverless Chats, I speak with Michael Hart about pushing the limits of Lambda. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 18. I'm Jeremy Daly, and you're listening to Serverless Chats. This week, I'm chatting with Michael Hart. Hey, Michael, thanks for joining me. G'day, Jeremy, mate. How's it going? You having a, you having a good day? Is everything going all right so far? I love the Australian. <laughs> I love the Australian accent. Now, you don't actually talk like that, but that was uh... mate. I don't know what you're talking about. I talk like this all the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I do. I do wonder. I feel like if I did speak like that all the time, um, people might find me charming but i don't think they'd have a clue what i was saying exactly yeah no i actually <laughs> thought australians spoke english until i met a bunch of australians and i said I, I don't know if that's english but uh anyway so it's it's awesome to have you here um you. you're the vp of engineering i'm sorry you're the vp of research engineering at bustle um you're also an aws serverless hero um why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your background what you do and uh and, and what's going on at bustle sure so um a little bit of my background, have started a couple of companies, co-founded a couple of companies, been CTO before. Um, in in Australia, this was a move to New York, um, did a bit of consulting and then joined Bustle as the, uh, as the VP of Research Engineering. So I, I, you know, do a bunch of interesting research things there. Bustle is a uh, a digital media company. Um, we have a bunch of sites, mainly um, targeted at, at sort of millennial women. Although we've recently been expanding that market. Awesome. And we have we have um, yeah, just in the last year or two, I think I think we've we've sort of um, acquired or started a, about nine other sites. So yeah, growing. And you guys are using serverless. Like yes, up and down serverless across stack, the board. Right? Yeah, been been pretty early on that. Um, yeah. Awesome. All right. So I've had a number of conversations with you. We were out in Seattle. We were out in uh, New York City the other day. Um, we've had a ton of conversations about serverless and Lambda and all these things that it can do. Um, I would have recorded the conversations, but usually we're in a bar drinking old <laughs> fashions or just being, you know, whatever. Um, and the, the audio quality wouldn't be that that good. So anyways, uh, I want to talk to you about all these cool things that you do with Lambda Functions because I have talked to tons of people and I capture use cases in my newsletter every single week. Uh, and, you know, they're interesting things, but I don't think I've met anybody who has pushed Lambda to the limits like you have. And I mean, not just like one thing, like multiple things. Um, so I want to get into all of that stuff, but just maybe we could start by talking about, um, you know, in case people don't know, like what what is a the Lambda function itself? It's actually an execution environment. There's a there's a uh, Amazon um, you know Linux um, runtime underneath there or operating system underneath there. So you know this inside and out, and this will become abundantly clear that you know <laughs> probably more about this than some of the AWS engineers um, as we go through this. But just let's start with that. What's 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 a Lambda function? What what's it what is it made up of? Sure. Um, yeah. So so you're absolutely right. It is. The environment that your function is running in is sitting on Amazon Linux um, until very recently, until the Node.js 10 runtime, that was all Amazon Linux 1. 
um, which is which is getting pretty old now. And then and then the run times themselves um, would would sit on top of that, just just in a directory in the um, you know in the operating system. Um, and and each runtime would have would have you know whether if it's running on Python then the Python binary and all the libraries and if it's Node then the Node um, binary and all the libraries, um, so that'd sort of be the only difference between those two runtimes. The underlying operating system still the same. Um, I mean, and the, these are these are launched very quickly now. Now it's on Firecracker, um, which is Amazon's sort of new uh, VM type um, technology. Um, that, that sort of provides isolation, but but essentially, you know, these these isolated environments spin up very quickly, um, and they're they're running an operating system that runs a runtime that then um, invokes your function, which is also sitting on the file system. Um, yeah. All right. So let's get into a little bit more of the details though. So, I mean, in terms of things that are installed and ready to go, I mean, it's more right. than just, it's more than just the, uh, the runtime, right? I mean, there's other libraries and other right. things. Right. No, you're, you're absolutely right. So, um, unlike, I'm trying to think of a, of a good example. Unlike, um, if anyone's played with Cloudflare workers or something like that, that's just running, um, JavaScript. There's no sort of file system that you have access to or anything like that. It's just it's just sort of a JavaScript environment with with all of the things that you would have access to if you're in the browser. Um, for example, those you know most of or a lot of those sorts of APIs um, in in Lambda. You, you there is a there is a file system there. It's it's a Linux operating system running a running a process. Um, and and then including your JavaScript file or Python file um, and and running that. Um, so as as well as your file and and the runtime itself, there are you know a bunch of base operating system binaries um, sitting there um, that that you can access as well. And Amazon's pretty um, cagey about what guarantees they give you about what binaries will be there they say um, you know if, if you want to if you want to compile something native that your lambda uses compile it for an amazon linux environment you know and that's and that's that's pretty vague because obviously you could have an amazon linux environment with a whole bunch of binaries um, or or dynamic libraries installed um, or you could have an incredibly stripped back um, operating system that has nothing installed. So in that case, you'd need to sort of bring those binaries yourself into your Lambda. So a, a good example is if if your Lambda function wanted to call out to Bash, um, do you just assume that Bash is there on the operating system? That's probably a, a pretty fair assumption. Um, Bash is on most Linux um, uh, operating systems or certainly the larger ones. Um, so that might be a, a fine assumption, but then um, another example might be Perl. You know, maybe you need, maybe maybe your function does something a little bit exotic. Maybe it's doing some cool image manipulation or video manipulation, and it needs to call out call out to a Perl script. Do you assume that Perl is is on um, in the Lambda environment, or do you bundle Perl yourself, or include it in a layer, or something like that? Um, so yeah, that, those are the sort of questions I think that you need to think about. But they because a bunch of binaries do exist um, in the operating system and you can kind of see them there in your Lambda, um, it's quite tempting to use them. 
Yeah. And so I think that's actually something that's really, really interesting because when I first started using serverless and Lambda functions, it was basically the idea was, okay, great. I got a snippet of code. I upload it and uh, it can access a database or it's going to, you know, call an API, right? It's going to use some of these basic functions um, that are built into uh, that are built into the to the runtimes. But then, you know, every once in a while you have that image manipulation thing, you know, so you have some sort mm -hmm. of resizing an image or, you know, and there's and there's basic binaries out there. And this used to be really, really hard um, to sort of compile those and then you have to package them. And it was, it was such a pain to do it. Um, obviously, there's Lambda layers now and we can talk about those in a few minutes. Um, but so let's talk about before we get into that stuff, let's talk about the node um 10.x runtime stuff, right? Right, so right. So this was sort of a huge, this is kind of a big leap, right, when they when they implemented this? It was, and, and they didn't announce it as such, um, I, uh, not from memory anyway. They were basically just like, okay, we're now supporting Node 10. Um, but then when I looked at it, I was like, oh, hang on a sec. This is run. This is actually quite different to all of the other runtimes up until this point. Even, even the custom runtimes that they had introduced used the same sort of base operating system um, whereas Node.js 10 was running on Amazon Linux 2 so all the other runtimes uh, run on Amazon Linux 1 um, and Node.js runs on Amazon Linux 2 which you know has is, is a lot more a lot more modern and has, has a lot more sort of modern uh, a more modern kernel and, and more modern binaries available for it and and you know if anyone's using EC2 and using Amazon Linux that that's exactly what they will have been using for quite a while now. Um, but yeah, so it was running Amazon Linux 2 and it was running an incredibly slimmed down, or it, it runs an incredibly slimmed down version of it. Um, the The entire OS is, is something sort of like around 90 megabytes or something, which um, whereas Amazon Linux 1, um, I'm going to pull a number completely out of nowhere but it, it, it's something I want to say it's 500 or 600 megabytes or something like that a, a fairly what you'd consider maybe a fairly standard OS installation whereas mm -hmm. um, Node.js 10 is running on an OS that doesn't even have the the find command you know um, it, it doesn't even have it, there are some very very basic um, commands that that they've just removed um, completely um, which when you think about it, it kind of makes sense because these these lambdas you want them to spin up as quickly as possible and if you are only running um, you know your your js code or your or your um, python code or and and you're not using any native dependencies or anything like that you're not you're not relying on any binaries or you've compiled your own go binary or, or something like that um, you don't want there to be any extra fluff and you want the the little VM instance that it's running on to spin up as quickly as possible. So um, it makes sense that you'd want the smallest OS possible. Uh, and this is true for anyone who's using Docker. You know, they'll um, they know this that the smaller the smaller your image is, the smaller your container is, the quicker it, it starts. Um, so it it completely makes sense. But it's certainly a little bit of a um, a departure from what they had done before. Um, thankfully, you know, they didn't they didn't sort of do it under the under the feet of anyone on the existing runtimes, it was a completely new runtime, so no one's code was going to break. Um, but if you did want to, uh, there are definitely a bunch of functions out there that you can't just move from, say, Node.js 8 to Node.js 10 um, to to move from one runtime to another. Um, if you were if you were relying on certain behaviors or you know um, 
expecting certain binaries or dynamic libraries to exist there. Yeah, I mean, there's been a bunch of changes with um, like sort of how callbacks work and some of that other right. stuff. Right. So that's so that's that's actually on top of the OS itself. Yeah. So so that's another that was another departure. You're right. Um, is as well as the underlying operating system and how tiny it was. The runtime um, that sits on top of it, which which is really only just a, a, a JavaScript file or two that gets executed that then loads your um, code and runs it um, that that had been completely rewritten um, the the runtime that exists on node.js 8 and node.js 6 and node.js 4 was all pretty the, the code's basically the same um, it's the same node.js code that loads your handler function um, and then runs it the code that was on node.js 10 uh, in the runtime was quite different um, it, firstly, it's it's using the same mechanism that custom runtimes use, which is sort of an HTTP client um, method, as opposed to the other runtimes, which were using some sort of native bi- uh, binding um, to to sort of speak to the Lambda supervisor. Um, but um, yeah, so so it was it was written in a completely different way. And and in terms of some of the other breaking changes, right? So I know there was a bunch of complaints about the logging stuff, right? Right, yeah. So, I mean, I, I um, as I do, I, I kind of lo- love to look under the hood of these sorts of things. So, I had a look at the code that was that was written uh, for the Node.js um, runtime, and it was it was not good. I would say, <laughs> um, just you know, as a Node.js developer who's who's been developing for many years, it was code that that you know you you get an intuitive feel for whether. Whether someone kind of knows what they're doing um, or not, and and it, it looked as though the, the code had been written by people who had never written Node code before. They were, uh, they, you know, they were they were doing things where they were completely ignoring callbacks. They were completely. It, it was just. It was not how you would write um, asynchronous code in in Node. Um, I did a blog post, made some complaints about it, um, and other people had seen changes as well. Um, that you know weren't necessarily directly as a result of the quality of the code, but were certainly as a result of some of the decisions they made. Um, errors were being swallowed at the top level um, and not not being printed out as they were on other runtimes. Um, and and yeah, as you say, the the logging had changed. Um, they 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 had sort of had added another field um, in the logging, so any of your existing logging parses or anything like that would wouldn't work anymore. Um, they, and, and this is still true, um, they, they sort of get, they strip out any new lines, um, in your logs and, and replace them with, uh, carriage returns. Yeah. Um, so, so anytime, you know, and, and that, and that could be lossy potentially, um, depending on, on how complex the thing that you're logging is, but it, it meant that, so, you know, a, a log that previously would be multiple lines is now all on the one line. Uh, and these sorts of things, I think, would be fine if they had done them from the very start, but um, because they hadn't um, and they changed them in the new runtime, I think people upgrading to that runtime, you know, have have had to maybe um, just deal with things a little bit differently. Well, I will say, anytime you see a Node script that uses double quotes instead of single quotes, you know <laughs> that's suspect, right? <laughs> Yeah, single quotes for life. I guess. Exactly. Um, all right. So the, but right now, I mean, the the thing was is that you're right. When it first came out, there were there were a lot of things you wrote about. You had a great blog post about that whole thing. But 
But right now, I mean, it's pretty. I've been using it now in a later in my latest project, and I mean, I've been pretty happy with it. It is fast. It's stable. It's. Uh, uh, I think it's a huge improvement over what was there before. Hundred percent agree. Yes. No. They. They they went in. They made a bunch of changes. I mean, the the runtimes actually change every now and then. Um, I, I noticed this, because um, you know I have I have a Docker Lam- this Docker Lambda project that we might chat about later. Sure. Um, so so I'm constantly sort of checking for changes that will have happened, and, and they actually change the runtimes every now and then. Sometimes it's security patches, but sometimes it's just um, they'll add something in a little bit extra, or they're, they're clearly they've. They've added something in because there's been an edge case or a bug. You can kind of see exactly what it was with the, with the code that's changed. Um, but with a Node.js 10 runtime, yeah, they completely um, rewrote all of the code and, and it's it's much better now. Um, and I agree with you. I think I, I would recommend anyone use it. Um, you know, be aware if you're upgrading from from yeah. eight to, from the 8 runtime to the 10 runtime that there are some minor changes with the logging. But aside from that, I think um, everything's pretty rock solid. So one of the things you mentioned with the new runtime is that uh, the Amazon Linux 2 strips out all kinds of these basic commands. Um, And we generally don't need them. We might not need to do like a disk usage, you know, a command line command within a Lambda function. So we don't need that. We don't we don't need find. Um, But we do need some things. Uh, And now and maybe we need a different runtime. So custom runtimes and Lambda layers are two things that were introduced back, you know, almost a year ago now, which is kind of crazy that that much time has gone by. Uh, But so I still feel like the custom runtime stuff, you know, there's there's been a lot of blog posts about this, too, where like, why would you use custom runtimes? And I was thinking about it myself. And I'm kind of like, yeah, I mean, you know, why would I use my own node custom runtime? And I know you have... Uh, you know, you have version 12 uh, custom runtime that you built for it. Um, but I think you have a really, you have a really good perspective on this because it sort of changed the way I look at it. So w- what do you think about custom runtimes? Yeah. So, so I actually, I actually agree with the general advice that, um, you know, uh, one of the reasons that you choose Lambda is because um, so many things are managed for you, um, and 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 you don't need to worry about so many things. And and there is an issue if you choose a run a custom runtime that that is is an extra thing that you now need to think about um, in terms of patching, um, at least the runtime anyway. The, the OS under the runtime will still continue to get security patches and kernel updates and all that sort of thing. Um, without you knowing about it, um, you know it'll happen one day, and and um, suddenly your new lambdas, whenever they cold start, will be running on a you know on a patched OS. So you don't need to worry about that with custom runtimes, but you do need to worry about, of course, um, upgrading the the language that the runtime's running on itself, um, and if that happens to be a dynamic language. I mean, I think plenty of people are using custom runtimes for languages that just aren't supported um, on Lambda, and that's an excellent use case. You know if if you want to be using Swift or, or something like that, or or Rust or, or whatever it is, um, then I think that's a, that's a very valid use case for for a custom runtime because uh, you have no other choice um, other than to to use a an officially supported language. But but yeah, like why would you want to choose a a custom runtime if you're running Node when there are Node runtimes available? Um, and I think there are a few. Uh, a few reasons for this, not many, but a few. Um, one is if you want to include some things um, that across your organization, you know that you're going to need um, and that everyone's going to need. 
um, then you can sort of bundle them in the runtime um, itself. Um, I don't know. Might, you might you might have some wrapper around around your function that every function needs to have, um, and that every function needs to to invoke um, when it first starts up. And you don't want the authors of these functions to worry about that, or to also have that extra step of adding a layer, because um, arguably a layer could do that. Um, but but having the custom runtime there means that you're you're in control of that that boot up process. Um, you, you might need to authenticate with something before the function runs or there, there might just be a bunch of things that you want to manage across your organization and providing a custom runtime might be the easiest way to do that. Um, and then there's just, um, I don't know, if, you, if, you, if you're the sort of person that <laughs> likes staying up to date, um, I mean, I know that I, I can release my node custom runtimes quicker than Amazon can. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I'm, I'm using my custom runtimes, I know I'm actually less out of date than everyone else who's using node 10 because, <laughs> um, I, I haven't checked, but the last time I checked node 10 was still a few versions, you know, a few patch versions, if not a few, a couple of minor versions, um, out from the, from the most current node. Um, so, so yeah, if you're the sort of person that is happy managing your own, um, Runtime because that, that's that's not quite the same ask as managing an entire operating system or installing um, Kubernetes. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, 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 yeah. It's 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 not it's not quite that intense. It's it's literally just okay. Yeah, I've I know how to get the latest Node binary and turn it into a. But I I actually thought though that the the, the and we can talk about layers too. Um, because actually, well, let's talk about layers and we'll go back to your custom runtime use case because I, in my most recent project, I started. I'm like. I'm going to use layers, right? Because everybody says I should use layers and so forth. And then right. I ran into this problem of, all right, well, where do I deploy my layer to? Like, where do I package that? Is that in a separate service? I'm sharing that across multiple services. What's the service discovery on that? There's no semantic versioning on it. Everything's mm-hmm. just adding a number. Mm-hmm. And then I found out, hey, I could put it in a SAR app and I can version that and whatever. And then I realized... I can just put, you know, GitHub colon and then the path in my npm. I mean, my in my package.json file, and I can just install it right from my own with with semantic versioning, right? I can put right. tags and things like that. And I was just thinking, I'm like, you know what? This for the purpose of this, I, this is just going to be easier. Um, and the reason why I was even doing that was because I have a um, I have something that works for specifically formatting, um, logging a certain way. Um, I have an authentication um, component that will take in the uh, the authentication headers uh, or the um, uh, the custom authorizer headers, and it sort of transforms that into a, a common object that all of my scripts can deal with. I've got a, a an event bridge emitter function that allows me to easily send um, um, notifications to event bridge and things like that. And rather than writing that service for every single you know service that or writing those scripts for every service that I have, I just created those, have those as shared services, and I pull those in. Um, you know when when the uh, you know when you install or they're installed as node dependencies, basically. And mm-hmm. your use case, where what you were talking about with the custom runtimes, was actually kind of interesting because I'm thinking to myself, if all of my services are using Node, and I have you know five or six different sort of common packages that I want, like. 
why not have those sort of built into the runtime um, right. as opposed to having to make sure that I install them as no dependencies and have access to things like that. And that way I could just say, if there's a major update to these to these individual dependencies, I can just update the runtime and use the you know the next version of the runtime. And to me, that seems like it's a lot easier to manage that one thing. Now, again, you're still managing your own runtime, right? But for a larger organization that wanted to enforce certain security policies and certain logging um, requirements or whatever it was, um, that's actually really. I think it's probably a really slick way to do it. Yeah, hundred percent agree. I, th I think a classic example of that would also be. Um you know, the, the AWS SDK. You yeah, know I mean? absolutely. Yeah. You know, so many people use that. Um, of course, you can use the one that exists in the Lambda itself, um, but even even AWS recommends, yeah, <laughs> recommends against that. Um, it's yeah. very convenient that it's there because it means you can write a one-line Lambda that does, you know, amazing things. But Especially if you're forced to write... Um, code through the console for some of under, those under duress <laughs> under duress on a live uh, on a live video stream yes yeah um, I, don't, I don't know why you'd uh, want to do that or put yourself in that situation but yes yes for for things like that it's very handy to have the the node runtime there but but of course yes managing uh, especially you know a new service comes out um, and you want to use it from your lambda well guess what hey it's not supported by the AWS SDK version that's installed in Lambda just yet, so you're going to have to wait, or you bundle it yourself. Um, and yeah, a custom runtime would would be one example of doing that. Um, again, custom runtime it does mean that you need to that you would need to understand how custom runtimes work. Um, as soon as you understand that, I would say there's no extra onus uh, on you. Um, to, to keep it up to date or anything like that. Um, there's, there's nothing uh, particularly fancy that you need to do. Um, and, and of course, there, there are a number of custom runtimes out there that you could just extend yourself and add your own packages to. Um, but yeah, the layer thing, I, I agree with you on that. I think it's a, it's a real pity it doesn't have semantic versioning. Um, and and it, it was really interesting to find out that, yeah, you, could, you can do it via SAR if you want, but it's kind of like... It's kind of like, it's almost like a hack in a way, a hack of SAR of, of like creating a yeah. whole application that's really just a layer. Um, you, you get semantic versioning and things like that, and you get you get global. You, the layer can be can um, be on across all regions, which is kind of nice and a little bit of a pain if you manage your own sort of open source or or, or commercial layer that you want other people to use. It can be a pain to replicate that across all regions. Um, but but I, I have one one thing that you should consider um, with with not using layers is deploy time. Now you might your dependencies might be nice and small, which is great. Yeah. But but you know if they start getting up into the multiple megabytes, um, if you have something in a layer, you don't actually need to deploy it each time. Um, and and the, yeah, I think it was maybe even Brian Lurie who who made that light bulb switch in my head because I was. When when layers first came out, I was like, okay, this this is kind of neat, but you know, assuming you know how to manage dependencies, what what's the point? Like, mm -hmm. um, there's there's no real point to this because I was hoping, I think I was hoping when they were announced that I was like, oh great, this is going to give you extra package size, um, it's going to give you extra <laughs> extra space. Um, it's maybe going to make um, cold starts quicker because oh, they're going to be able to bake um, the layer in with the base image. Um, and and all have that all ready to go, 
Um, my understanding that that could still be an optimization that they might make, but my understanding is they don't. You know, I mean, that would I guess mean they'd have to bake, uh, as it were, a lot of uh, many, many, many um, different combinations of of people's um, runtimes. Um, but but yeah, it, there is there is this advantage. So you don't get any other advantages really, but there is this uh, advantage at deployment time, which is well, you don't need to deploy the layer again. Uh, and all the code that sits in it. And if you have um, dozens of megabytes, um, that could make your deployment a lot quicker. Yeah, and I, I definitely think, I mean, I, I, I think the public layer stuff, I mean, especially some of that stuff that Goico has done with, right. you know, uh, FFmpeg and some of those other, like, or Num, uh, NumPy or some of mm-hmm. those other things, mm-hmm. um, those are great because nobody wants to compile those things down, although you might have an alternative to that <laughs> that we'll talk about in a minute. But, um, you know, that's just easier for someone to say, why I don't want to have to run a local Docker and compile it down and then do that all myself and package my own layer and then manage that layer and so forth. And I think right. some of those sort of things are relatively safe if I need to pull in, um, you know, FFmpeg or something like that. Pulling that in via a layer uh, is so much easier than trying to manage that myself. Right. No, and I think that's a good point is that perhaps for people who are new to Lambda, they might not actually realize that, oh, your Lambda is going to be running in a different environment probably than what you're developing on. Yes. You're probably not developing on Amazon Linux. You might be developing on macOS or something like that. Um, and, and you're used to being able to just sort of, you know, maybe brew install something or yum install something um, and and have it ready to go for your application. And, and I think this trips up people a lot is when they first go to start using Lambda is, is they don't realize that the package that they've installed, um, you know, that's sitting in their node modules that they then zip up and 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 fire off to Lambda. Well, that was that was natively compiled for macOS, which exactly. is what they're developing on. That's why it works locally. But they've bundled it up, they've sent it to their Lambda, and hey, it doesn't work anymore because it was um, it was a native binary compiled for macOS. And and I and and I think that so there's that step of going, oh, hang on, oh, okay, I messed up. Um, I have to do something about this. What can I do? And then the answer really from Lambda is it's not a great one. You know, it's like, oh, well, you need to make sure that your binary is compiled for an Amazon Linux environment. It's like, yeah. Did you just tell me to go F myself? What, <laughs> like, <laughs> what does that mean? What, um, does that just mean I can, I can find a, a Linux binary somewhere and use that? Uh, maybe, you know, some, sometimes you can. But what does a Linux binary mean? What is it depending yeah. on? What is it assuming about the environment that it's running in. And um, I think people, yeah, especially newcomers, they end up going having to go down a rabbit hole that they really didn't want to go down. They were just like, I just wanted to install this dependency. <laughs> All right, so that's a perfect segue because now we should talk about Docker Lambda, which is the essentially a... Uh, a Docker image of that Lambda runtime environment that you can use to test things locally, compile um, binaries, you do all kinds of things in there. Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about that? Yeah, um, 100% right. It's it's basically a Docker image um, or, or a set of Docker images that are, that are um, trying to be the most faithful reproduction of of the the live lambda production environment as possible um and and you know they have all the same the exact same files or, or at least the ones that you have access to there there are some obviously that that are only accessible by root um that that i i can't replicate um but aside from that it's it's the exact same file system and as much as possible um the same sort of permissions because 
um, in the Lambda environment, you only have write access to slash temp, you know, um, you, you don't have access, you don't actually have write access to the to the directory that your code is in. Um, and, and that can trip people up as well. So, um, so I created it because um, I was I was trying to do some some pretty fancy stuff um, in Lambda. And I was just getting frustrated with this. Um, you know, the idea of, oh, I have to spin up an EC2 instance um, with Amazon <laughs> Linux and then compile my stuff there and then copy that over, what, to my local machine and then zip that up or, or you know, or deploy it from EC2 or, or it was um, it was getting very painful and, um, you know, you can maybe do it once, but then the cycle of development is just really slow. Um, so I was like, well, I wonder how hard it would be to at least try and, you know, get, get a similar sort of environment Um to Lambda just running locally using Docker. It's a, it's a sort of perfect use case for Docker, um, you know, because Lambda is kind of like containers. Um, mm-hmm. And and the way that I ended up doing it was essentially by running a Lambda, which tars, uh, you know, creates a tarball of the entire file system and and copies it over to S3. And then I pull that down and, and you know, there's a Docker command that you can use to create an image from a tarball of an entire file system. Um, so, so sort of as much of the file system as I can grab, I, I grab that, put it in a tarball and then, and then create a Docker image from that. Um, and then during that process, as I was doing that, I realized, oh, hang on, all of these runtimes, they, they're actually running the same operating system. It's just one directory that's different, you know, slash var slash runtime. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's where the runtime specific code lives. That's where the Node.js um, 8 code or the Python 3.6 code or whatever lives. The rest of the operating system is exactly the same. So that's kind of cool. I can create a base image and then each runtime can just, um, I just need to dump the slash var slash runtime directory. Um, and, and there's a couple of others now. There's slash var slash lang slash var slash rapid, I think is, is one of the new ones. Um, but there's a couple of directories that change um, within each runtime, but everything else is the same. So that makes it easy um, to create separate images for each runtime then as well. Um, and then what I did on top of that was, so, so that, that's great. That gives you an image that's a replication of the environment and, and you can use that to then um, compile stuff and that sort of thing. But I, I thought, well, hang on, I could, I could also use this to mock out um, running a Lambda um, and I could actually use the runtime code itself because it's sitting there. Um, so I could use the exact same code that requires your you know, index.js and, and looks for the handler and then executes the handler with all the, and, and like you know, on, on Node, for example, um, it overrides console.log and adds, um, it adds a bunch of fields so that whenever you console.log, it actually outputs um, a bunch of extra fields, um, and, and it's the runtime that's doing that patching. So I was like, well, instead of trying to replicate that, I'll just let that code do that, um, mm-hmm. you know. And then the only thing I do need to mock out is obviously whenever it tries to talk to the the Lambda um, parent process, you know, talk back to the supervisor and say, um, hey, here, send these logs off to CloudWatch logs. Yeah. I'll just intercept that, and we'll output them to. Um, you know, output that, them to the console and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, thus uh, Docker Lambda was born, and um, and I, I think you know I, a lot of people started using it. They found it really useful. It's a little bit if if you are testing your Lambda locally and you don't have any native dependencies and it is just a, a simple function, um, it's not really necessary to go to the degree of um, 
this this level of replication. You know, you can you can very easily write unit tests um, that just test your functionality without requiring a whole Docker environment. But um, if you are doing anything like writing to the file system or anything like that, it, it sort of gives you this extra um, level of of uh, parity with with the real environment. Nice. Um, yeah, so I um, I wrote that. I remember chatting um, with at the very first serverless conf in 2016 with Tim Wagner about it, who who is the the sort of father of Lambda. He created Lambda. It was at AWS at the time. Um, I was chatting with him about it and a bunch of other things like, oh, will Lambda ever be able to run Docker and things like that? And um, I said, so I've I've been experimenting with this idea of creating this thing, and um, you know, it'll allow people to test and um, and he was he was like, okay, yeah. It sounds it sounds okay, but I don't know. I, I think people will probably just want to test in the cloud, really. Like I think that's where we'll put our focuses on, and we'll just we'll just make it easy for people to test in the cloud. Um, I don't think they'll you know they'll really want to run Docker on their local machine as part of a testing environment or anything like that, or 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 more just you know he was like, no, that's that's probably just um, not an effort that I think we'd want to pursue at Amazon or anything like that. Um, and then, uh, which which I think you know, which I think is okay. That's a, that's a valid response, and and it's I, I could buy it if if you could literally deploy everything, you know, deploy your entire cloud formation stack in milliseconds, and 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 have a really fast cycle, and and also be able to like have free development accounts and things like that. Yeah. Um, then I could I could buy that you could you, you could use the cloud as a testing environment. I still think that's something that that Amazon could aim for is is to make that process much easier because what what better way than um you know than testing in the environment where your where your production is actually going to run but but anyway so i created it and then yeah a good year later um the aws sam cli team reached out to me and they were like oh hey we've noticed your docker lambda project and we we're thinking about <laughs> writing a local local testing um utility in the, in sam cli um maybe we could use that and i was like yeah, yeah. great go for it so when you said um, so, people, when people are using it, you meant a billion dollar company was uh, right. like, hey, we're going we're gonna to borrow this if you don't mind. Yeah, a trillion um, dollar company. Uh, tri- I'm sorry, tri- did I say billion? Oh, okay. <laughs> trillion dollar company, yes. Um, right. So anyways. Yeah, so, so now if anyone uses um, Sam Local, yeah, long story short, if anyone's using Sam Local um, and and then they're, they're spinning up the Docker Lambda containers, basically. Awesome. All right, so. That was one cool thing that you did, which was sort of just, you know, duplicating the environment, not just mm-hmm. duplicating, but you did all this work, right. But knowing all those internals, you then took this further and you started doing these other crazy things with it. Um, and you launched this thing called LAMCI um, right. that basically built an entire serverless build system for, you know, CI for, for uh, uh, continuous integration. Um, so tell, tell us about that. Right, so actually, LAMCI preceded Docker Lambda. I, I wrote Docker Lambda as a utility as I was writing LAMCI. So, so I was like, well, hang on. With Lambda, we've got access to you know, you you can suddenly spin up all these instances incredibly quickly. Um, what's you know one of the most painful parts of of sort of development um, and sitting there twiddling your thumbs. Um, and, and that's waiting for a CI build to finish. And I was like, well, hang on, if we could get CIs running in Lambda, they'd be incredibly fast. Not only that, but at the time, because um, this, this is back in 2016, maybe even 2015 when I first started writing it, um, 
there was no sort of pay per usage um, CI systems. You, you, mm-hmm. you basically paid per month. Um, you know, you'd, you'd be like, okay, yes, I want I want access to one build server or or maybe four build servers or something like that, and you'd you'd pay per month. Um, there was, as far as I knew anyway, um, there was no way to get a, a per request pricing or a per build pricing or something like that, um, which, you know, especially, especially in the serverless world, that, that thinking maybe wasn't as, as common, it seems obvious now, but, um, you know, it wasn't as common back then that you'd only want to pay for the resources that you use. And I think people did, would do things like, um, they might be running Jenkins and then at night they'd shut down their build cluster and then in the morning they'd, they'd start it back up again. You know, you could do cost-saving things like that. But I was like, well, hang on, we can just build up, uh, spin up a build in, in milliseconds and, and have it shut down again. You're only charged for the time that it's building. So um, so that's one advantage. And then the other advantage is, well, you're not just limited to maybe four concurrents because, you know, I, I was um, CTO of a company that had not, not many developers, but... 16 developers and once you've got 16 developers if you're really doing ci cd and you're pushing stuff out all the time and you want you know to be able to everyone to have their own staging environments and all this sort of thing um you're pushing the ci servers pretty hard um and the worst thing is for people to be sitting there stuck in a queue waiting for someone else's build to finish so that they can then access the ci server um with with lambda obviously um i mean you could get to that point but you'd have to be doing thousands and thousands of concurrent builds basically um before you started stepping on someone else's toes um so yeah i thought look this would be great it's running linux um yes there are some limitations but i'm sure there's a whole bunch of things that um that i could get running so i started exploring what you could do and and it's definitely it's it's very straightforward to to sort of um do very basic sort of node testing you know because it's just running node files Um, but then i started pushing it more and i'm like well what if what if you wanted to do an npm install and you had native dependencies? Um, how are those native dependencies going to build uh, in Lambda? So I was like, okay, I need to get GCC compiled for Lambda, um, you know, and that was quite an adventure. But I did it, and so you know, then it was like, well, hey, you can do npm install and have native dependencies installed because GCC is running on Lambda. It's compiling your files, um, and initially, I think the the timeout limit was five minutes, and then they yeah. expanded it to fifteen minutes, and that was a big. That opened up, you know, because people were were using LAMB CI and running into this limitation. But then it became fifteen minutes, and and that that actually, you know, there are people obviously that have builds that run for longer than fifteen minutes, but not many. Whereas there are a lot of people that I think that have builds that run longer than five minutes. So um, that opened up a big um, a big bunch of use cases there. Um, there. There were some, I think, restrictions early on about TCP sockets and things like that. Um, that stopped people from opening local servers that they might want to do integration tests on. You know, you, you, you create a local express server that you then um, test all your, mm-hmm. all your HTTP routes against and that sort of thing. Um, you can now do that very easily in Lambda. Um, yeah, so, so as time's gone on, there have been more use cases that you can kind of do um, and, and that you can then use LAMCI for basically. So the other thing uh, that I'm just thinking about too, like you can start use or you can do other tests. Like, can you run like Selenium tests and like headless? Um, you can. You uh, can do headless. headless yeah. So like so um, you know some some awesome people have experimented. I guess just as I have with with getting some crazy things compiled and running on on Lambda, um, including TensorFlow, but also including Chromium. Um, so you can run a headless Chromium in Lambda. You can you can 
do a whole bunch of UI testing. Um, you can you can run Lighthouse. You can you can actually use it for all sorts of um, interesting things. Um, so yeah, you could you could be doing that as well. And part of the reason why this is so cool is because as you mentioned, you have a Jenkins build server or something like that. It only has so much processing capacity, um, and it lo- it runs a lot of these tests serial serially. I'm not going to be able to say that word. <laughs> See, I, I got to channel um, uh, channel uh, Peter Zabarski here and say right. uh, parallelize. Um, so we you can parallelize these jobs with Lambda CI now, and you or sorry Lambda CI, and you had a post the other day on Twitter where you said you took like build times down from those like seven minutes down to like 15 seconds or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Um, so, so we use this or, or at least, um, have been experimenting with using this, um, at bustle for a while now. Um, and we, you know, I, I came on two years ago, there was already an existing CI system in place and, and we do some pretty hairy things. We, um, we talk to Elasticsearch, we talk to Redis, and we do that in our tests as well. So, you know, the, we we need the CI system to be running um, Elasticsearch and running Redis. And you can do you can do this in, in Travis and Circle CI. You can have these services set up, um, you know, a local Elasticsearch running and a local Redis. Um, but you can do it in Lambda as well. You can, as part of your build process, download Elasticsearch. Uh, certainly in the Amazon Linux One um, runtimes, Java is sitting there. Um, so you can download Elasticsearch and you can run it um, and have it exposed locally. Redis, um, even easier. You know, Redis is a very small binary, um, and you can run that. Just expose local ports, and then your your unit slash integration tests can can talk to that um, locally. So we do that um, uh, at Bustle, and uh, yeah, that, that's back end testing, front end testing, um, similar sort of thing. But you know, you're often running, you're running tests, unit tests, but you're also running linting and you're running mm-hmm. um, formatting, and you know, these days, and a whole bunch of things um, that you can do in parallel. People, you know, might be parallelizing these already um, in their CI systems if they've got a couple of um, concurrent servers available to them. Um, but with Lambda, you can you can really go crazy um, parallelizing it. Um, so I would, I've got it running so that it tests every nth test, you know, mm-hmm. um, you can, with, with most test runners these days, you can pass a list of files to it. Um, instead of just passing a directory, you can pass a list of files. So you can just use, um, you know, the find utility and, and an awk command or whatever to, to go and grab every fifth file, um, or every 10th file or every, 50th file um, pass that to your test runner and each lambda can be doing every 50th file and you can run 50 lambdas in parallel and boom your tests uh, suddenly run 50 times faster um, so any any um, job like that that you can do in parallel that you don't need some sort of serial bunch of steps for um, yeah is, is a perfect use case for I mean it's a perfect use case for any um, you know parallel system it's just that lambda is incredibly good at that um, and, and it's going to be a lot cheaper um, to, to do on Lambda than it is to be buying 50 um, concurrent servers from, you know, renting, renting them from a traditional CI. That's awesome. All right. So now we're going to go to the next level stuff. Um, right. So if you're, if you've been. That's not if, next level enough for you. Well, that's what I'm saying. Ready if to... you made it this far, right. um, I hate to tell you what we just talked about was kid stuff. Right. Uh, all right. We're going, we're going to the next level. All right. So 
you have been working on a new project um, called Yumda. Right. right. Tell us about this because this thing is, this blows my mind. And that's part one of my chat with Michael Hart. Join us next week as we continue our conversation on pushing the limits of Lambda. I want to give a huge thank you to Michael Hart for being my guest this week. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 18. For more serverless chats, be sure you subscribe and rate the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or any of your favorite podcast apps. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you're interested in serverless and want to discover all the great new articles, use cases, and latest innovations from the serverless community, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week. Thank you.